1: Welcome to the Dacus Report. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute. On today's show and the second half of our program, we're going to talk to our attorney out of our Idaho office about some very interesting case law as well as some legislation that's moving that state and potentially the nation in the right direction. Uh, But first, I'd like to bring to uh, the studio now an individual who's worked very uh, helpfully for the Pacific Justice Institute and who heads up our office there in Nevada, Attorney Emily Mimna. Emily, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, thank you, Brad.
1: Hi, so glad to have you on the show. You've uh, done a lot of great work for PJI and uh, I just really like your, your depth of analysis on so many things that are happening. I'd like to first start off uh, addressing what just took place recently in Houston at the uh, the church, uh, that was it was so so disastrous. Uh, Lakewood Church, uh, there in Houston. Um, what are the details that are emerging right now about that horrific and sad and unjustifiable incident?
2: Right. The, the details, as you point out, Brad, are still emerging. We don't like to speculate, but we have heard from the Houston police about the incident thus far. And the shooter, this was, this occurred on a Sunday, allegedly in between bilingual services. So it, for, first of all, it, all as, as we always say, it, it could have been worse. But um, what happened was an individual, presumably being reported as a woman, there is a weird amount of discrepancy to, to skirt the issue, no pun intended, about whether or not this individual was a woman or a man. But th- this individual apparently had multiple aliases but the, according to the driver's license, it was a 36 year old female with a history, um, an extensive criminal history, entered the church with an AR-15 and was going to and opened fire. And fortunately, fortunately, the church had security and the two men working for security were able to stop that individual who also reportedly said that she had a bomb with her. And so this woman with an AR-15 was stopped by these two men who were both police officers. One was an off-duty Houston police officer. The other one was working for the Texas Alcoholic Beverages Commission. And those two men heroically stood up and stopped this woman. Unfortunately, a seven-year-old reportedly shot in the head, a 57-year-old shot in the leg.
1: Yeah, I understand that she was using her her own seven-year-old as a human shield. That was something I heard. I'm not sure if it's true or not. Uh, but this is a sick woman. I also heard that on her, her rifle, her AR-15, uh, had uh, free Palestine or uh, you know pro-Palestinian jargon on there. Uh, that's pretty disturbing. I, mean, I don't know if she was Muslim or not, but this seemed like a very sick person. Um, and if, she was, if it was a biological woman trying to be a biological male... I mean, trying to, to you know identify as a male and was taking hormone shots. I don't know if that was the case. That parallel what happened in Tennessee, where uh, testosterone being f- you know f- uh, flooded into the body of a woman uh, can cause uh, serious, violent, uh, compulsive reactions uh, because the the female body is not you know used to this large amounts of testosterone that many people trying to distort their gender, uh, end up absorbing and have absorbed into their body, injected into their body. Any information on, on either, any of that infor- that I just said? That you?
2: The, the police did, did confirm that the word Palestine, maybe free Palestine, was somehow labeled on the AR-15. It, it is a strange state of the universe when we are unable to identify the sex or gender of the shooter who is now deceased and was shot dead by, by those protecting the church. Um, it, 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 again, the, the, the identity study was a 36-year-old female, perhaps the person also or was previously identifying as a male, a lot of uncertainty and lack of clarity. Um, If this was simply, you know, using different aliases because this person was involved in criminal activity or if there were, as you point out, Brad, some type of gender transition issues as well, hopefully we will learn more and hopefully we will see honest reporting in, in, you know, the so-called mainstream media about this so we can actually find out what really is going on because it's concerning, as you also point out, Brad, when you see connections to other shootings also involving deeply troubled people experiencing gender dysphoria.
1: Yeah, they often are bipolar. They often really need counseling and uh, proper uh, support. Uh, but, uh, but the bipolar actually is uh, something that is a result of the, uh, the hormones that they're flooding their bodies with. Uh, for, once again, for, for women, and I'm not an expert. I don't pretend to be an expert, <laughs> for, for the record. But, um, you know, but my understanding is, from what I've read, that a woman who is injected with testosterone to try to distort their gender, uh, that they can become very violent. I mean, because testosterone is an aggressive hormone. It makes you uh, very uh, assertive. In fact, men that are taking testosterone injections uh, can become much more violent and reactive than they normally would. I know of a tragic case in Orange County where that happened. Um, Conversely, if it's a man... A biological man uh, taking large injections of estrogen, the first year or two, they may feel good. It may sort of feel happy and stuff. But then that transfers and translates into depression oftentimes uh, with a considerable increase in suicide, unfortunately. But depression can cause people to do things that doesn't make sense, that are are not reality, that um, are fatalistic, if you will. And uh, so that either of these scenarios could be a contributor to the decisions that this person made, that uh, was was so tragic and so harmful. You know, we have to just sort of think. And this is my opinion, Emily, is that if this person who had a, a criminal record, I get that, but if this person had constructive counseling on what their true underlying issues was, whether it was sexual child abuse of the child, whether it was just making bad decisions and making bad decisions on top of bad decisions, uh, guilt unresolved, uh, whatever the case may be, uh, unresolved hate and bitterness because of something that happened to them. Uh, and, and, and in particular, if they had, had uh, received the, the, the love and the grace of God through faith in Christ, this would have turned out differently. I'm, I don't think we would have had this outcome. I don't think this person would have gone down this this path, which leads to death and destruction statistically. But uh, when we see it in individuals and we see what's happening, I think our society needs to do it, take a second look at how we're addressing these issues uh, through promoting gender distortion. It's, it's, uh, I don't think you can really separate that from what happened. I just don't. I mean, the media probably wants to, but I think practically speaking, statistically, I don't think you can. What say you?
2: Oh, what say me? I'll say what say the New York Times, Brad. And I don't say the sentence a lot, but the New York Times ran an article agreeing with you. In fact, they they ran a, a pretty long uh, op-ed piece from a doctor and from psychologist who said, and she she was very open about the fact that she had supported gender transitions previously. But th- this doctor, this psychologist, was looking at what what's being called rapid onset gender dysphoria, where you have these teenagers suddenly. Suddenly declaring that they're in you know in the wrong body, in the wrong gender, in the wrong sex, and very, very rapidly no history of this type of an issue. And, and even this person who again what had been an advocate for gender transitions and the and use of hormone therapy and, and those so-called treatments later in life was was expressing and raising the alarm. And as you point out, one of the second, a third, a fourth look. And I thought it was telling that even the New York Times, you know, in fairness, gave extensive coverage of this issue because those viewpoints are generally being suppressed. So I, I was heartened to see that maybe this conversation is, is, that needs to happen is starting to happen in our society.
1: Yeah, there, there's a price we pay when we violate the laws of nature and nature's God. It's that simple. There's a price. And it's not just an individual that pays that price. It's society as a whole that pays that price. And uh, unfortunately, as we see... Uh, society encouraging gender distortion and mutilation. Um, I I, I think we're going to see more of this. I hope I'm wrong, but I I think we're going to see more of this just because of what science says and what the stats are saying moving forward. Now, uh, while we're waiting for society to learn from the error of its ways, uh, there are some things that churches can do to help increase their security. In fact, I understand we have a very valuable resource on our website for free right now, available for churches that will help increase their security uh, from instances like this, right?
2: Absolutely, yes. If you go to pji.org, you can access this free, emphasis-free resource prepared by our chief legal counsel. And it is a church security memo that walks through various situations and common instances and um, problems that churches encounter with trespasses or repeat disruptors and also the necessity of having a safety plan in the case of an active shooter in the case of you know an earthquake or some type of natural disaster all the different things that your church can proactively do and again I want to circle back to the facts of the, the, the Lakewood shooting where we, you know that church had you know, off you know security officers on, on on campus present and they were able to intervene and so it is important to be aware of the fact that there are active measures you can take as a church protect ourselves for natural disasters and for you know unnatural disasters as it were
1: yeah you know i i really like the fact that where i go to church i know that there are trained individuals who carry uh, who are there to protect uh, the the people in the church myself my my wife kids i mean it's it's really assuring it's very positive to know that you have that kind of security protection being implemented intelligently uh, at, a, at a church. And you, know, you don't have to go to a big church to be able to have those kind of policies. In fact, I think small churches need to focus on it just as much because they're often viewed, I think, as more vulnerable and easy targets, perhaps, from versus big churches, which are more expected to have you know, paid security and all these other things. But uh, these are things that every single church should do uh, churches that say, "Oh no, we're no guns allowed here. No, no guns, no firearms allowed here." Um, they're stupid. I just think that's blatantly stupid uh, because they're just putting their congregation, their flock, at risk, and and that's uh, absolute foolishness. And hats off to this church, uh, Lakewood Church, because um, they they had obviously trained people, and had those trained people not immediately moved in like they did it could have been absolutely horrific in terms of the casualties, especially at a, at a church like that. So, Emily, thank you so much for the great work you're doing there in the state of Nevada, and I look forward to our next update. God bless.
2: Thanks, Brad.
0: Did you know that PJI's Church Finds Its Voice initiative is a huge success And coming alongside pastors to encourage them to get all their congregants registered to vote and then to vote biblically in every election for candidates that share the Christian worldview and commit to serve their constituents with that mindset. We communicate regularly with over 3,000 pastors and we do it all free of charge. Keep current on PJI's work on all the legal challenges we face on a daily basis by signing up for our Legal Insider email newsletter at pji.org. Now, back to the Dacus Report.
1: Welcome back. Uh, we now have on the, the show an individual who I highly respect, Catherine Hartley, who heads up our office there in Idaho. Uh, Catherine, welcome to the program. Uh, Hi there.
3: Thanks for having me, Brad. Hi. <laughs> Hi
1: there. Now, I understand that you recently testified regarding some legislation that would repeal the Blaine Amendment from the state constitution. And before we get into the details of the Blaine Amendment, I just want people to know uh, this isn't uh, – we're not just uh, you know, in the weeds looking for some micro-legal issue here that's going to bore folks. Uh, this repeal of the Blaine Amendment, I want to state right up front – is something that is going to be potentially very impacting on uh parents' rights uh, and uh enabling uh religious freedom uh to flourish more than it is presently so it's it's very significant right up front we're going to talk about that a little later but first, what is this blaine amendment that you testified uh for legislation that would repeal uh this uh this 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 Blaine Amendment from the uh, Idaho uh, Constitution.
3: Yeah, I I agree with you, Brad. This is a huge religious freedom issue. And if nothing else, I think it's great that this is getting uh, this issue is getting out there and that people are hopefully going to understand it a little bit better and learn or unlearn some of the misunderstandings about what the First Amendment really says about this. So I, I agree with you. I think this is a, an amazing opportunity to get this issue out there. But uh, what is a Blaine Amendment? So a Blaine Amendment, in general, they are state constitutional provisions that have been controversial for a long time. And what they do is they prohibit any public funds from going to a religious purpose, or religious entity. And the Blaine Amendments are part of many different state constitutions. And not every state in the union, but most of them have something like this within their state constitution, including my state of Idaho here. And it's rooted in actually anti-Catholic bigotry from the 19th century. And the original intent was to prevent any state funds from going to Catholic parochial schools. And since then, it's it's been used as reasoning to really discriminate against all kinds of religious entities and people when a state is offering some type of benefit. And um, I, it's, it's rooted in discrimination, and I think it's great that the state of Idaho is trying to repeal um, this part of our Constitution that is, is really discriminatory towards religious people.
1: Now, I want people to understand that. Some people may be wondering, like, well, wait a minute, why was it anti-Catholic? Because it didn't mention Catholic by name. But what people need to realize is in the 1800s, public schools were not like the schools today. Public schools, they read the Bible, uh, the Protestant Bible. They prayed uh, the Protestant Lord's Prayer. They, uh, it was very, very christian uh, in terms of the the way public schools carried themselves, and the majority were Protestants and said, "Hey, we don't want to fund kids uh, learning to say Hail Marys and and Catholic stuff in a Catholic parochial school. Um, we want them in our our Protestant public school." Um, so it was it was interesting because it wasn't like they were, uh, were discriminating against you know private protestant schools there wasn't really much of a need for it back then because public schools were effectively christian in in so many ways Uh, so it was very much an anti-catholic uh piece of legislation unfortunately there's states all across the country that have adopted this now constitutionally uh catherine what is going on here and why can this be repealed
3: It's a great question. And Blaine amendments are, are really inconsistent with the First Amendment. They're inconsistent with the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, which are the two religion clauses that we find in the First Amendment. And thankfully, the U.S. Supreme Court has, I would say, clarified this uh, more so, especially in recent years, Not that they haven't before, but this is, as you know, happened in a number of different cases more recently. And they say when you have a misunderstanding of the Establishment Clause, which says, okay, the state cannot establish a mandated religion. And as we know, that has really grown to people saying, okay, the government cannot even talk about religion. Or And the government has to have this strict wall, and people like to use the term separation of church and state to argue this, that there has to be this absolutely strict separation of of anything religious within the government. And that is just fundamentally incorrect under the First Amendment. Local governments, state governments especially, can talk about religion, and when they don't, it actually creates this hostility towards religion. And then you find that the, the government uses that to really enact policies or legislation that prohibit the free exercise of religion. Nice. And so that's what we've seen. And again, thankfully, the Supreme Court has been pretty clear on this in more recently, but there's it, within the public, there's a very big misunderstanding of this issue. And everyone wants to get up there and say, well, we can't possibly fund anything religious because separation of church and state, and that's not allowed. And really, that is based on a misunderstanding of the way the First Amendment operates.
1: Yeah, I, so, like, I like the fact that the Supreme Court of the United States uh, it does it no longer, I would say, has a majority by any means that is a strict separationist kind of mentality. We may have, I don't know, maybe Sotomayor— you know she's pretty much she's pretty anti-God oftentimes when it comes to see, it seems that way to me anyway uh, legislation and uh, the latest justice you know I don't know if Justice Jackson if she's gonna uh, if she's gonna be as as uh, belligerent against uh, faith and institutions of faith like Sotomayor has been um, so we'll have to wait and see but right now my understanding how the Supreme Court has uh, flushed things out is basically saying hey um, so long as it's it's uh, you know neutral on its face. Uh, there's no problem here, so long as there's no uh, you know uh, seemingly in t- uh, an intent of government to push and promote one religion over another. It's okay for faith to flourish, and and uh, be uh, encouraged to flourish uh, by government, so long as government isn't selectively choosing one religious group over another. And I think that's really encouraging. In fact, I understand there's a number of recent cases that have really made that r- really clear.
3: Exactly. Um, there's three main cases that have happened in recent years. Um, Trinity Lutheran, Espinoza, and Carson are the three U.S. Supreme Court cases that have really uh, fleshed this out. And um, the, the Trinity Lutheran case um, came out of Missouri. And in in that case, the state of Missouri offered... A benefit to everyone. Um, it was a, a type of grant to help uh, playgrounds revamp their playground surfaces, and a church applied um, to receive this benefit, and they were denied because they were a church. And um, interestingly enough, the state made that determination because they relied on the state's Blaine Amendment or the part of their con- their state constitution that said no public funding can go towards a religious purpose. And so that went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, no, this is, this is generally offered to anyone in the state. As long as they otherwise qualify, a church can't be denied. And so they really made clear in that case that, you know, any time a benefit is offered by the state, receiving that benefit cannot be conditioned on whether or not it is going to be received by a religious person or a religious entity. And so that um, then that decision was used in the Espinoza and Carson cases, which both dealt with um, school vouchers, school grants, which, as we know, is a major trend happening in our country where states are or I should say some states are trying to offer alternative funding to parents and families who want to have educational options potentially outside of the public school system. And again, the Espinoza case came out of Montana, and they were offering a, a, some type of school voucher program, and they were denying parents who wanted to send their children to religious schools. Again, they were relying on their state constitution provision that said that public funding could not go to a religious purpose. And uh, once again, the Supreme Court said, no, the state could not do that. And um, sl- shortly after that, the Carson case, um, essentially the same thing out of Maine. Wow. And so, yeah, so we're we're seeing how the the effect of these con- state constitutional provisions called Blaine amendments are really affecting the decisions being made by states. And it's it's great to see that the the Supreme Court has corrected that. And, um, of course, I'd love for. Idaho to be the first state to just remove that from our state constitution um, to make it even more clear.
1: Yeah, so as I understand it, uh, even if a state has this uh, anti-faith Blaine Amendment, uh, strict, strict separation of church and state Blaine Amendment, that's what I'm going to call it so people understand what we're talking about, um, even if they have that, well, the, the U.S. Supreme Court effectively has said these are unconstitutional, right? I mean, effectively, it seems like that's... Uh, What they said uh, that the government, if you enforce this Blaine Amendment and say you can, uh, you know, you'll benefit uh, and have vouchers for a secular private school, but you're excluding it from a religious private school, you can't do that. That's state hostile religion. It violates the US Constitution. Blaine Amendment or no Blaine Amendment states, you can't do that. Um, Montana learned that. Maine learned that. Uh, So what they're doing in Idaho is to say, we want to get this off the books completely. We don't want there to be any confusion down the road. Uh, The Supreme Court's made it very clear. uh, We cannot have this strict separationist uh, language in our state constitution called the Blaine Amendment uh, to justify bigotry and discrimination against people of faith or institutions of faith. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for what you're doing there in Idaho. And uh, God bless you and keep up the great work.
3: Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me on today.
1: Thank you.
0: We would love the opportunity to continue to serve you. Just visit pji.org and click the Legal Insider button to sign up for our email newsletter. At PJI, we help individual employees, employers, business owners, pastors, students, citizens of every stripe through our practical resources, counsel, representation, and defense. All free of charge at pji.org. BJI is an island of stability and assurance in our ever-churning sea of legal and societal chaos.
1: We are here for you. So folks, just remember, it's our God-given freedoms we're talking about. Now, let's choose to keep them. I'm Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Let's continue the fight for your freedoms.